Hey guys, welcome to episode six of Call to the Pen. Today we have the privilege of having Eric Cressy on, director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. Um, also co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance um, in Hudson, Mass. and in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. And uh, the host of Elite Baseball Development Podcast. You guys can check it out on, on Apple. It's a great podcast. Um, you know, just dives into all the medical things and has player interviews. Uh, it's an awesome listen. So we're honored and privileged to have Eric on today. Yeah, I think if uh, both of us have trained with Eric for quite a while, I think you longer than anyone, obviously. But um, I don't think if anyone hasn't heard of Eric, he is the guy for baseball training, really any training. I think I've used him a lot for BMX and it helps. But um, this guy has totally changed the game, I think, for training. I don't think uh, anyone was really going that way until he broke in and with the programs that were built for your body and making you move in different ways. I think this guy is, this guy is the man. I don't care. Anyone says he's the man. So uh, we're definitely excited to have him on. Can't wait to hear what he has to say. Absolutely. And he's, like you said, I think he's the pioneer of baseball specific training. And, um, you know, I, I started going back to him in 09, uh, just my college coach, like, you got to check this guy out. Drove an hour and a half to Hudson mass from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And, uh, never looked back. I mean, it's, it revolutionized the way I looked at training and how I want to prepare for a season. So, you know, welcome on Eric Cressy. Yeah, Eric, thanks for uh, coming on with us. You know, I'm really looking forward to our future as uh, starting a Jupiter softball dynasty with our ladies, the green bombs, the uh, Jupiter Seahawks league uh, champions this year after being in last place last year, coming out on top this season, Eric Cressy bench coach. What do you got for us? What's the key to our success? Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, as a bench coach, the, the key is organization, clearly, because I'm, I'm effectively a glorified bat boy and the guy who puts the catcher's gear on the girl that can't put it on herself. So um, I don't know, you, you, you have the high level. You're, you're coaching a base. Yeah, no, it's it's hilarious because so, you know, Tom Kohler was our 8U, the head coach. I was an assistant. Eric was assistant. And then on the 6U side, I was the head coach. Tom was assistant. So anytime we had a bench coach, they're basically the glorified, like, no offense, babysitter. Because the kids didn't know when they were hitting. They had no concept of, like, the lineup and stuff like that. And especially at the 6-year-old level, um, I'm, you know, thankfully Eric didn't have to really do that. Um, that was a whole other animal. Because, like, you're just hoarding a bunch of cattle and, like, trying to keep them all in the same place without losing their minds. So it was great. To, uh compete for attention with like the little brothers and sisters that always like to come to the back of the dugout and like tease the players with like, Oh, I got ice cream. You don't. So you're like, always no, get out of uh, here. Girls got to focus. <laughs> so funny, but man, it was a good time. And hopefully yes. our girls, you know, stick with it for, you know, through high school, we'll have a nice little dynasty going. So we were practicing yeah. yesterday. So we're, we're getting ready for next year already. <laughs> well, it's not even fair. Tonight. You guys are going to have like serious training programs going on as it goes on. <laughs> exactly. They're going to be pushing sleds through the outfield. We're, we're probably like the most moderate parents there. Um, just because like, I think we all realize that like, what, what's the, the phrase in young athlete development? They say early to ripen, early to rot. Like our kids are out doing a million different things. And, you know, there's a bunch of travel ball girls in this league that are like way out of their skis and they'll, they'll probably hate softball by the time they're 11. So Steve and I are slow cooking them. Yeah. I mean, they are pretty good though. I'm not going to lie. We had some good, the travel girls on our team were sick. <laughs> They're so good. Yeah. But Hey, we've been training at, uh, Ken, so you've been at training at Cressy's place. Well, from a distance for what, four years, five years, uh, 16 or off season of 15 going oh. into 16 was my, 
Reed Johnson was training at a gym that I was at, and I was just happening to do stuff I saw on Twitter from Cressy. And he's like, hey, you train with Cressy? I was like, shit, I wish. Shoot, I wish. <laughs> and then uh, he's like, well, you can. You just you can just do it from afar. I'm like, how do you do that? And he goes, oh, I'll just give you his email. So I emailed Eric, and then we he just we did over – said, do these videos – basically to see uh, how bad you are. And it just, he makes you feel terrible about yourself when you think you're a really good athlete. You're not. <laughs> and then he, and then he just basically, and I was coming back from knee surgery and I was having a lot of problems. So then he's like, Oh, how, how's your tissue density? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, okay, I'll get you a guy. So he sent me to a guy and my soft tissue was a mess. And then he gave me a program and history ever since I was an all-star two years later. I think I probably got an extra six years out of my career. Thanks to Eric. And now I'm moving into the BMX. BMX and podcasting, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, I always just figured you'd be that guy that would retire and be sitting on his porch yelling at the kids in his neighborhood to get off their lawn. So I appreciate <laughs> it. You're still hustling, my man. I still am, but I like to at least stay in shape while I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, I remember we talked about it early, early on when uh, – I first started training there. I was like back squatting as much weight as possible, thinking I'm so strong that me being like a, like Bambi, like a newborn deer, how skinny I am. I show up to his place for the first day. He has me put like half the amount of weight on the barbell and correct my form and, you know, use my body properly. <laughs> and next thing I know, I can barely walk out of that place. <laughs> it was brutal. And that, well, that trend kind of continued for the next, how many years, Eric? Quite a long time. Was that off 13 years, 14? Was that 08 or 9-10? I can't remember because I, I do remember we were you made your major league debut our wedding weekend in, in, in mm -hmm. 2010, so it was definitely before that one. But um, yeah, man, I, yeah. I, I give you a lot of credit. You made a you made a lot of long drives. That was Falmouth to Hudson, four days a week, back and forth. It was uh, a lot of mileage, so ton ton of well, hustle to make it happen. Not much going on in the Northeast in December, January, so <laughs> it's pretty pretty desolate. But while we're on the subject of workload, um, Kins and I have been, I mean, we talked about this when we were playing, Kins, um, how to manage um, bullpen workloads, especially when you have a young minor leaguer coming up who, uh, you know, has never really, he might have pitched back and back to back like once or twice in his entire career, but might have to pitch four out of seven days and kind of manage that and still stay sharp from a you know, where, where you're at in your position, how do you, how do you see like the best possible um, route to take handling a minor leaguer, preparing him for a workload like that without him getting injured? Yeah. I mean, I think you, you backtrack from like what an injury is. Ultimately an injury is just a, it's an imbalance between load and capacity, right? So, you know, either the load is, you know, acutely really, really high or it's chronically really high. Um, or the athlete just doesn't have enough capacity to, you know, to, to basically tolerate what's thrown at them. And, you know, historically things are a combination of the two, right? So, um, you know, there's a game last year, we had an athlete got injured, um, you know, mid season, we, we played three games in 30 hours in two different time zones. And he pitched in two of them in like high leverage spots. Hmm. So you're like, that's one of those levels of load that it, like, it's hard to have enough capacity to really handle that no matter who you are, just cause there's so many variables that get thrown in in a situation like that. And that's, that's a function of baseball you know, schedule being crazy. But um, you know, I think it comes back to, I, I always try to say that, that work capacity is skill specific. Um, and you look at like Lance Armstrong was the best cyclist on the planet and he retired, he got into running and he was, he's kind of like a mediocre marathoner um, just because the joint actions were, you know, basically very different for running than they were for, for cycling. And 
So you have to train in a very specific way when you're, when you're trying to build work capacity. And that's why I've always disagreed with like running lots of poles and things like that to, to prepare for like, you know, basically building your pitching tolerance. Like, yes, an aerobic base is important. I, I probably think there are better ways to attack it, but there's, there's no better way to condition someone for throwing back to back than to, to have a progressive throwing program that builds chronic workload, you know, with strategic deloads mixed in. Um, and then honestly, you just, you have to scrutinize load at the big league level. And um, I think that's something that gets really overlooked. And um, to be honest, I think it's probably worse now with the, the option limitations is that, yeah. you know, yep. we, we, I think it was Lewis Head had like 12 options a couple of years ago, and now five is all you can do. So sometimes those young bullpen arms um, that are in the big leagues, like in the past, they might've gotten an option when they threw two days in a row. And now they, they got to stick it out and they wind up going three out of four or four out of five or something like that. So they, they probably are more exposed, um, particularly because the load is always going to be higher when, when guys are throwing as hard as they are now, which is a, it's, a, it's just a totally different world. And obviously when you guys mm -hmm. came up and when we first started out. Yeah. One thing that like, like these days, well, I think when me and Steve came up in the minor leagues, back-to-back -back days was not a problem. Like you're, if you were the closer of your double-A, triple-A team, you won back-to-back days. Even I think I even went three times in a row. But now, like I've noticed the last couple of years, if you're a, a, a priority guy, they call it, uh, they, you, you're not going back-to-back -back days. And then all of a sudden, these guys get called up and let's say uh, they do well right away. And the next thing you know, they're like, all right, we're throwing back-to-back -back days and we need you to go three out of four. And then... They're like, oh, this kid, he gets hurt or he can't do it. Now there's limitations. It's like, at what point do they come to you and be like, Eric, do you think, or do you even have it? Does, do they go to you and think, do you have an input on how this is how we should condition this athlete before when he gets to the big leagues? Because the big leagues, you can't have limitations. And because if you do, like I've experienced where guys have limitations in the big leagues and it creates a whole problem for the whole bullpen. Like, oh, this guy's off. Like you're going three out of four. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, you've got to do it. I don't know if double A is the right time just because that is, you know, that high A to double A seems like a really, really big adjustment that, that I've seen over the totally. years. Um, I don't know if you got agree with it, but um, obviously triple A to the big leagues is the biggest adjustment. But I think triple A is the time when you have to, the guys have to be exposed to back-to-backs because like, like you said, you're at that level, you're preparing for guys who contribute to a major league roster, you know, in a pinch, you know, one guy gets hurt right. up yep. and, you know, <laughs> play 13 innings or something like that. It's just going to happen. So it's, it's probably less of a need than in the past when you could play that you know, 18 inning game and the, the ghost runner has obviously changed that. But I, I think you've got to do it in AAA. There's there's no way around it. Um, you know, to be honest, you probably see it more in the college setting than you do in the lower levels of the minor leagues because you play these weekend series and, you know, you often get guys that throw two out of three games or, or back to backs. You'll see guys that throw in all three, whether that's right or wrong. It, it definitely seems to happen. Yeah, they get five days off after that. So that's it's very different. But, but you that leads to my next question. Yeah, that's where how do happens. you those, those acute spikes, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it, that's a kind of a hot topic right now in light of some of the college world series pitch counts. But yeah. like, I, I don't think it's, it's healthy to go out and throw 160 pitches, even if you have six days off, because we know like the research suggests that, you know, basically acute fatigue is a big deal. Meaning like you have muscles, so soft tissue structures that cross your elbow to protect your ligament. And they've actually done research that shows how those muscles fatigue and how the ligament basically, how the medial elbow gaps. So they, they protect your elbow, your ligament much, much more early on in a game than they can when they're fatigued in the seventh, eighth, ninth inning. So it was a different ball game when you had kids that were, you know, 84 to 86 throwing all these games. Now we've got guys that are 93 in the, you know, on pitch 160, like 
that that's definitely a massive risk factor for you know for ligamentous injuries. Especially if there was a if there's a pitch clock in college and this kid threw 160 pitches, I think he's 100% getting hurt. <laughs> Toast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that one. Is, is that kid? He's throwing 95. I'm assuming he's a you know he's gonna get drafted or at least sign as a free agent somewhere, right? He has a future. Unless we don't know something about him, he's like, I'm not gonna play baseball after this. I'm just gonna let, leave it all on the line. But I'm assuming you're talking about that kid from what Stanford. I mean, that was obviously the, the hottest topic, you know, of late, but I think there have been a collection that have happened around baseball. And, um, yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I always choose my words, words carefully because I never like to comment on them. I don't have context, but, um, you know, those, those are, those are big deals. It's, it's, it's obviously a pretty big discussion point where every, you know, every state in the country has high school pitch count guidelines. Um, you know, certainly I think they had pretty significant ones during like the world baseball classic as well. It's, it's been put into little leagues, all these different things. For some reason, the NCA has always just kind of turned a blind eye to it. So um, it is something that I think is a big deal because what happens is, you know, we often see those players, they, they get through it, but then three or four years later, you, you know, they get hurt in the minor leagues and no one talks about it. You know, minor league injuries don't get reported very well. So no one ever really, you know, has to, to bear the brunt of the blame for it. So I, I, I do think it's, it's something that should be visited at some point. Do you change your programming? Let's just say from a kid comes to a college to pro ball. And now obviously let's just say it's a reliever, actually starters because they're going to go every five days. So it's a little different. Do you feel like you've changed your program from college to pro ball? And now with the pitch clock, is there anything that you change differently for them? I think the most important thing is just abiding by the pitch clock while you're doing your throwing program. Um, and you know, that I think we both know like where that can be tricky nowadays is, you know, like Steve, you, you and I have seen it, like guy throws a pitch and then all of a sudden he talks to his pitch coach. He looks down at like what the iPad tells him, whether it's Rapsodo or Trackman. Maybe he's looking at the Edgertronic video. Um, and before you know it, he's taking a minute and a half between pitches. So, you know, there's a time for, I guess, sessions where you're kind of like, you know, fine tuning your delivery or your offering or whatever it may be. But there is a time to actually get more more specific with it. To be honest, I, I mean, I don't know how many guys you've talked to. I, I really haven't heard a ton of guys that have really complained about it a lot um, this year. I, I, I don't think that it's, it's actually been a huge conversation point. I think more of the complaints maybe have come around like the enforcement of it in some capacities, some of like the, you know, the hitters calling times and things like that, that are, you know, I think there was one the other night about like, um, didn't throw his first warm up pitch in time in the game. Like when he first came in, he had to start before like the 32nd mark. So I think it's just, some of the stuff that, you know, it's the, uh, the bug that they've got to work out of the system. But I, I honestly haven't heard a ton of guys being really, really frustrated about it. Like, I think most people like the fact that the games are going a little smoother and they're, they're getting rid of some of that wasted time in the middle. Yeah. I mean, it's basically to clean up the guys that literally take forever. I mean, I, there's not a ton of guys that, you know, <laughs> took that long to, yeah. you know, pitch the pitch. The, but we've discussed it before. The problem is, is like, all right, you're in a pinch. You're in a tough situation. Game is on the line. And you're taught your whole life to slow the game down. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you don't have that time to slow the game down. So you have to come up with a new strategy. I think that's just the toughest part of it. But with yeah. the injuries and stuff, I mean, I could see guys getting hurt a lot quicker based on you know what you're saying with um, just how quick guys have to work. And especially starting pitchers, man. It's just, it's tough. But yeah. Um, yeah. I was actually cracking up because I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but um, David Cohen actually made a comment 
on the broadcast. I think it was actually last night's game. He was like, why, you know, if this is such an issue, why aren't all the mound visits at zero by the end of the game? You know, if like you're in a big spot, you can call for a mound. Totally. Catcher can spot, and, you know, games end and guys still have, you know, four or five of them left. So um, you know, there's probably more, more rest in there if they need it. You know, you know a lot well, of guys aren't I'd... calling for that. Yeah. Well, I think you got to know no your analytics guy, told them to take a mound visit. That's why. <laughs> you gotta well yeah the analytics don't tell you that you have to know the personality that's on the mound do you, you might have a guy that needs to, to slow down i'm not gonna mention any names yeah. so i almost did um and then there's other guys that just want to power right through it so um i mean it's just as a pitching coach you just got to know your guy you know i, I still kind of like i always like to be the one to just to go right through it um just if I'm, I'm gonna give it up real quick or i'm gonna get the outs real quick let's just go so <laughs> It's also kind of um, it's magnified on top of the three batter minimum, right? So if you're a guy who comes in and you know you get one of those like marathon fifteen pitch at bats where you know guys foul off a ton of pitches and you're going fifteen seconds, fifteen seconds, um, you know in the past like you you have one of those at bats like you you might get taken out. Now you 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 slayer a couple of those in a row, give up a you know a ground ball single or something like that. You can be at forty pitches and not a lot of time in a single inning. Hmm. Yep, that's true. totally. I mean, Eric, so uh, Kent, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Oh uh, no, I was just—I was going to piggyback off what you um, talked about earlier um, with the training programs nowadays. With guys throwing harder than ever, um, I'm thinking over the last ten years. I want to say over the last five years is really is where the velos really started to ramp up. Is there anything different you do nowadays for those guys that are, you know, coming in throwing a hundred miles an hour training-wise that you would have done? you know, the years pass. Does that make sense? So for me, like I'm a, I was an older guy last year. We actually shortened it to three training sessions a week yeah. with more running in between yeah. higher volume of, um, reps, um, as opposed to a younger guy that might've, you know, did more, you know, heavy loaded stuff. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, just to, to put some like quantifiable numbers to this, like if I pulled this from fan graphs, like last week for something else, but in 2002, Average four seam fastball velocity was 89.0. In 2022, it was 93.6. So we're talking about 4.6 miles per hour. Um, it's, it's a totally different ball game right now uh, for, for a number of different reasons. Like the research is, it's a little bit inconclusive and it's hard to really pin it, but they basically say for every one mile per hour increase, your risk of elbow injury goes up by 15 to 20%. There's a few different studies hmm. and it's not a perfect relationship, but they can kind of extrapolate it. So we're looking at a scenario where we are seeing 60% more elbow injuries over the course of this time for, for a very specific reason. I think it's also the fact that, you know, guys are being sent out to just sell out for the dream, throw as hard as they can for an inning. And, you know, we have more outliers. We have more guys throwing, you know, not just 93.6, but guys throwing a hundred. And, you know, we're not worried about the dudes that are, you know, throwing 86 to 88 submarine guys, things like that. So it's a very different time than it was. Um, but I think the thing that, for me is just as significant is like, obviously that's not just elbows, that's shoulders, that's necks. Um, obviously mm. more thoracic outlet stuff. We're seeing more like finger issues, like pulley tendon ruptures and guys throwing sliders. But there was an article that just came out that pitcher comebacker injuries are sky high this year. Um, obliques have gone sky high. Why? Pitchers are nasty. Hitters are getting fooled more often. Their, mm. their pelvis and their torsos are going opposite ways. Hit by pitches went astronomically higher. They've kind of leveled off since about 2020. So just all these different factors, like it's not just the pitchers, you know, being gassed and, and all that, but, um, you know, it's also impacting how the rest of the game is played. 
Uh, and we're seeing rule changes. We're going to see more broken hands on slides because still in basis temps are up and more guys getting hit on pickoff attempts. So just, there's a lot of different things that trickle down from how the game has had to change because pitchers have gotten so nasty in large part because they're throwing harder. But, um, you know, to your question, like what are some of the adjustments that, that we've had to made, you know, certainly to be honest, the, the Steve Ciszek's and the Brandon Kinsler's aren't as common anymore. Right. Not, not just because you guys didn't just get by on velocity, but because you, you pitched so long, right. You guys both pitched into your mid thirties. Like the average lifespan on major leaguers is, is going to be going down when we see more and more kids that are having Tommy John at 16, they're having a, a revision, you know, in their, their mid twenties. Um, you know, it's, the 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 native ligament you know what god gave you is always going to be better when than what the replacement is and you know on the inside of your elbow that's a that's a meat of a condyle that's not a lot of bone that you can just keep drilling over and over again so i do think we're we're in a little bit of a crisis state and you know i i see i look at thousands of radiology reports every year um and 18 year old elbows just do not look good right now the shoulders aren't great either but the elbows you know pretty much everybody that gets drafted in the top five rounds has stress reactions, partial ligament issues, you know, previous histories of flexor injuries, ulnar neuritis, like they are, they are so different than the players that came up when, when you guys were like leaving high school and going to college and all that stuff. It's just a, it's a markedly different experience. It was. And I think that's why, to be honest, when we look on a lot of these major league all-star teams, some of these kids weren't the best players when they were 18, like, you know, sure. Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, these guys were, were elite, elite high school talent, but, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see how many late bloomers that we actually see, you know, performing at a really high level in the big leagues. Um, Steve, I don't know if you remember, we had a we had a day at the facility. There were probably 30, 35 big leaguers that were at that the facility it was actually when we were still in Jupiter. And, you know, I've always been involved with New Balance with area codes. And, you know, I asked some of the guys, I'm like, do you, any of you guys go to area code games? And they didn't even know what it was. Like Scherzer couldn't yeah. really tell me what it was. <clears throat> it was like a 48th round pick out of you know high school or whatever and sam fold was our only guy there that actually went to area code so like we're talking about like 29 out of 30 big leaguers like weren't even in the top mm-hmm. 220 high school players in the country that, that came to our facility they were all guys that figured out later or went to college and matured or um, all that so uh, I, I do think we just need to be mindful of like if we're talking about how do we manage like the steve ceshex and the brandon kinslers in their mid-30s like we've got to talk about what did they do when they were, you know, 16 to 20, you know, yep. they rode BMX, they played hoops, they, they did a wide variety of sports and they built this really, really pristine foundation so that when they got narrower with their scope and they specialized, they, they set themselves up for, for longer term success with it. That's um, extremely scary to say that the 18 year old elbows don't look good right now. Like how, because let's say club ball, all they do is just, blow kids out, blow kids out, blow kids out. Everyone goes to all these drive lines and everything. Everyone just wants to throw hard, throw hard. 14 year olds are posting on, what do they call it? TikTok and they're throwing a hundred miles. Everyone wants to throw a hundred, but by the time they get 18, their elbows look bad. But, and the teams are seemed like they're okay. They know there's going to be a lot of injuries because everyone's throwing a hundred. They, are they okay with like, or let's just say they're, they're the requirements of having a clean elbow is not as high as it used to be. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I, I think we've we've absolutely as a as an injury come to accept these things as normal, in spite of the fact that it's it's certainly not. Um, and and I think it's you know to be honest, like and, and you mentioned driveline, like I'm I'm super cordial with those guys. Kyle and Mike are good friends, and, and I don't I don't in any way like attribute to them. Like those guys are 
you know, they're no. an equipment and a technology company. And it's like anything else, like we've put stranded editioning stuff out there that I'm sure people have, you know, bastardized and done completely incorrectly and, you know, done with terrible form. And, you know, but you, you look at like, is, is what I'm contributing taking us to a greater good? And, and that's for sure. I, I think the bigger concerns are much more of the people that are that are driving the ship of like year out participation. Like the one thing that we know that leads to injuries time and time again, there's really really two big things that, that lead to injuries in, in young athletes. It's overuse and it's weakness. And, and the problem is the weakness a lot of times comes because they never have actual off seasons. They never have a chance for general development. They're not getting involved in strength conditioning at the right times or doing the right things. And then, you know, like if you're a high school kid that throws over a hundred innings a year, like it is a recipe for a disaster. Like it's, it's been shown yeah. over and over yeah. again, um, you know, injured <clears throat> athletes go to like times more showcases than uninjured athletes. Like the research is, is absolutely all out there. It's just that people aren't acting on it. And it's usually because they're, you know, their, their hands in the wallets, you know, everybody wants to make money on, on kids. And, you know, I, I wrestle with it too, because I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's going to become a day when our kids are, you know, are 13 and they've found what they absolutely love and they want to do it all day, every day. They want to travel for it and all this. And like, I, I, I'm not in the position now as a parent that I have to like draw a line and say, it's like, no, you can't do travel softball 12 months out of the year, but you know, it's coming. And, I'm more equipped from what I do to, to handle that conversation. If I was like a lawyer or an accountant or a truck driver or something like that, I wouldn't necessarily know how to handle it. I do what my son or daughter love to do. Yep. Totally. I mean, it's, it is true. Like, I, I mean, even when I was in high school, the rumor was like Southern colleges, like for Northern arms, because we're more fresh. Um, Cause you know, like I, Kent, you played multiple sports, I'm sure, growing up. I mean, you're a good athlete. Not saying I'm a good athlete, but you know. <laughs> I, I played, you know, four sports until junior uh, junior high, and I focused on basketball and baseball. But, I mean, I was on the other end of the spectrum. I was, like, really underdeveloped. You know what I mean? Like, I was throwing 80 poo in high school. My freshman year in college, you know, I finally, you know, got lifted weights, did agilities, became a better athlete and boom, like late bloomer, like you're saying it happened. I, I just kind of, I get it from the other side too. If you're like a parent and you're, and you genuinely want what's best for your kids, you're going to put them through this, you know, vigorous, um, throwing program to help increase their velocity, to give them the best chance to get their foot in the door, either professionally or at the college level. But at the same time, they don't really know the damage that they possibly are doing because their kid probably doesn't have a solid foundation to be able to handle that workload. Um, and so like, like you said, like you're, you're prepared for it. I think just, I think this is a great conversation for, you know, parents out there that just, they don't quite understand. They don't see the big picture. All they see is good intentions. I want what's best for my kid. Well, actually what's best for your kid is get them away from the baseball field in the off season every now and then get them in the weight room and then build off that. Is that what, is that what you're saying? A million percent. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's hard to know how to attack this. Um, one of the things that I've always tried to do is tr try to leverage just some of the people that we have in our building when I have to have these hard conversations is, you know, we've got, you know, guys that are in the Bailey's that trained with us when they were 14. So we, we've, you know, employed this long-term athletic development model and said, Hey, this kid was a first round pick, but he played football his senior year in high school too. Like, those things go, I think, a really, really long way, highlighting the success stories. And so I always applaud when I when I hear stories about, you know, guys that are in the big leagues that are multi-sport athletes where people stand on, you know, shout from the rooftops that they thought it was so important for them to do other things. Um, you know, the other one is a, Mike Boyle's a good friend. Mike's a, a pretty well-known guy in the strength conditioning field, particularly with respect to hockey. And he made a comment that one of the things that he thinks he did really well with his kids was 
uh, basically the average two lifts a week from age 11 on, you know, so obviously when they're young, they're just like kind of messing around, getting used to the gym, doing pull-ups, bodyweight things. And then, you know, when they get to 17, 18, it might be like a full blown off season. They're lifting four days a week, but it, it averaged out to two lifts a week over those seven years. You know, you do the math, that's, you know, 104 lifts times seven, you're getting in, you know, basically mid 700s lifts over the course of those seven years. It's just, it's such a huge hmm. advantage. Um, like I already see our girls, they like to come to the gym with, with mommy and daddy and just like pull each other on the sled and swing on the TRX and stuff. And, and I think that's something that, you know, we have these conversations. It's not to force strength training down their throat, but to say, hey, this stuff is going to be pretty protective if you do integrate it just a little bit at the right time. Um, and then when the time is right, you've you've created a foundation that you can really do it well. That leads me to my next question I want to ask. Like, we could, obviously, we might have some BMX listeners and then some baseball listeners, but everyone always seems uh, they want to get the strongest. Let's say a 10-year-old, 11-year-old. They want to load up their kid. They want to load up their spine. And I'm, like, always so scared. One thing I learned from you is you never really want to load up the spine. If you did, it was with the safety bar. You never want to put them in a really bad back squat. But even then, at what age do you think a kid should be loading himself up? Or is it just you think deadlifting, put stuff in hands? Like, it's a... And once they start like getting their spine in bad spots, like one thing I learned from you is bad positioning creates bad injuries. Yeah. And, you know, I, I never try to like vilify exercises. You know, I think we, you know, we use the safety squat bar just a little bit more because it's a little more shoulder friendly for, you know, for a lot of our athletes that might be in that really like externally rotated position that can be a little more problematic, you know, just from throwing. So it's a, it's a break from that. But, um, you know, the first thing I'd say is, one of the biggest like old wives tales in the industry is that lifting will stunt growth. Um, there's actually really no evidence to suggest. Um, there's a guy, Dr. Avery Fagenbaum at the college of New Jersey has done some amazing research in this regard. That's all very publicly available. Um, what's interesting is um, your, your collarbone is actually not skeletally mature until you're about 25. So, you know, no, nobody's like running into like these division one football weight rooms and like contraindicating bench presses because they don't want the, the clavicle to grow correctly. And, you know, all these NFL hopefuls. So um, in reality, what actually happens is when age appropriate strength training takes place is you're actually stimulating bone density. And it's, it's particularly important for our female athletes because they have a, a somewhat of a limited window to, to build that bone density. Um, but, you know, you, you do uh, favorably adapt to that load as long as it's the right kind of stuff. So um, there's really no concerns about it. And in reality, like think about it, kids wear heavy backpacks all the time. Every time you sprint, you're putting between six and eight times your body weight and ground reaction forces on your system. So, you know, what we can do by handing a kid like a, you know, a 15 pound kettlebell to do like a goblet blitz squat is entirely different and, and way more controlled. So I'll just say make the weight room controlled and, you know, eventually you, you broaden your exercise perspective so they can take on a lot more things. But, but you're right. Positioning is everything. Um, you know, you're, you're, we don't lift just for the sake of, you know, lifting huge weights. We lift because it reduces the risk of injury, you know, optimizes performance in various ways. And in some cases that external load can actually be really helpful for getting us into positions that, you know, we might not otherwise be able to like, you know, Steve, like, you know, you've got a, a little bit of a hip history, like for you, like a, a clean squat pattern with just body weight might not look awesome, but if we use like a kettlebell and a goblet set up, it, it cleans up your squat pattern really, really quickly. Um, and that's something that, you know, has a ton of favorable, you know, impacts for you from a long-term movement proficiency standpoint. So load's not bad. Load just has to be used correctly with the right people and at the right times. Yeah, basically, I'm just trying to load as much weight as I can through the downforce of my golf swing. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm focused on right now. 
maybe yeah. tennis if we start picking up tennis again is yeah you know we could do some agility work but definitely get back out there i mean hey vertical jump is is a very very good predictor of, of driving different distance believe it or not so um good thing to have uh, in your back pocket it'll help you with your uh with your baseball or your, your softball swing i should say too oh yeah there we go Kent, what's your vert i saw you jumping on a box before your your ankle injury Oh uh, yeah, my vert was definitely high. I don't know what it was, but I got a long ways to go now after this ankle injury. You gotta get a, you gotta get a video of that. That was actually pretty impressive. I know What's I was that? single leg, I was single leg <laughs> jumping like forty eight inches at least, like taking off or landing on one leg, taking off and landing laterally on one leg. Wow, what a play! Yeah, it's not bad for an old man. Oh, that's pretty good. Is that really like throwing a hundred though? Yeah, training all the, the neighborhood kids, so you gotta you gotta practice what you preach, right? Yeah, I mean, I gotta let them know, like I can show That's them true. up anytime I want. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think this this leads me to my my last question, unless you have another one, Kent. And I know we've gone back and forth, uh, back and forth with it. Um, you sent other pitchers my way on my opinion on how to handle this, but off season. You go through full season of baseball as a professional, you know, athlete, professional baseball player. Do you continue to pick up the ball and throw, or do you lay it down for a month or two? Have we come to a, like a final consensus on this? Um, I don't think we have. Um, I, I'd say there are more okay. guys than ever before who are continuing to play catch. Um, but I also know, like, you know, one one prominent name that we, we were mutual friends with, like, hated it. He's like, I, I, it was the mental aspect of it way more than anything else. Like by the time the following mm -hmm. July rolled around, I was absolutely sick of baseball and I've never been like that. And, you know, my entire career. Um, so I think it works for some people and not for others. Um, you know, the advantage of it is like, obviously from a, a motor learning standpoint, you don't have to retrain the pattern nearly as much. And, you know, some guys do deal with a lot of soreness when they start to throw. So they just try to keep it moving. And like, you know, obviously like, you know, Max is a guy who's been really, really, um, you know, leading from the forefront was saying that that was something that was helpful for him to avoid some of the soreness. But when you watch Max, like he's, he's messing around with a football, like he might literally take a tennis ball and just do like 20 easy throws. He might be tossing a ball for the dogs on the beach. Um, you know, for yeah. him, it's, it's not like he's not out there throwing missiles at like 90 to 120. It's just, it's keeping things moving. And I think if there's one thing we've learned about young arms is that they, they don't necessarily understand intensity. You know, some of these guys that just come out throwing missiles at, at 60 feet are, are really a problem. So I, I think it works for people who understand how to just like lightly play catch probably doesn't work as well for, for other guys who, who struggle with that level of restraint. Yeah. Um, hey, I'll be a case study for you someday. We can talk about it off air. Um, but I, I have some personal, just thinking back on the last few years being older, you know, I've, putting down a ball, I don't think was actually a good idea for me, but we can talk about that more the other time. Yeah. It makes sense physiologically. The biggest, the biggest thing that changes in an old shoulder, I actually learned this from, from Dr. David Alchek is the, the Mets team doctor. He's a wonderful guy. And he talked about the biggest change in old shoulders is elasticity. You know, so you think about, you have this capsule in the front of your shoulder, the ligament structures there. And early on in your career, they're kind of more like a trampoline. So you can kind of rebound off of them when you lay your arm back and, I think what happens over the course of a career is as your rotator cuff starts to slowly fail, the, the ligaments in the front of your shoulder actually become more like tissue paper. And that's why we see more capsular tears and in, in older hmm. pitchers. And I, I think there is something to be said about like not letting it get too stiff. And it does seem like some of those older players respond better to this. 
Um, so that may be a little bit of what you're experiencing. And, um, you know, the biggest thing though, that I think is advantageous about it is I've seen a lot of players over the years that when they, when they just shut down at the end of the season and they, you know, they take a month off from everything, they eat horribly. Their sleep schedule is all over the place. <laughs> alcohol, like it's a disaster. There's something to be said about when there's some kind of training implement, whether it's like going to yoga twice a week or just riding the bike or getting back to lifting or continue to play catch. They keep the athlete mindset and they, they eat better. They sleep better. They're just, they're in a much, much better place from like an overall recovery regeneration standpoint. So I, I've, over the course of my career, I've tried to spend more time, like, you know, like a guy like Brandon, like you were ready to go the day the season and like, you want to run through a wall, like you need to be protected from yourself. Um, and you know, Scherzer ism, right. To keep, you know, to use another one from Max is, you know, I'd rather tame a tiger than motivate a donkey. Um, but sometimes the donkeys are the ones that you need to tell them. Get moving. Steve, you're the donkey. Yeah, no, Steve is always really good. And I look like a too, so I can go over and yell at him. When I, I was in between. Stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, exactly. So bad, but, um, no, it's the guys that show up December 1st and haven't done anything since, since the end of September. They're a nightmare. Like it's, it's never easy to do. They've already started their throwing programs in some places and you haven't had a chance to like, you know, work on the really foundational stuff that underpins a lot of that longer term success. So I always want guys to move in some capacity, you know, maybe take a week and then go from there. Yeah. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes I did the last couple of years is I took a month off from lifting and throwing. Didn't eat great, but I gave myself a week to crush whatever. And then I stopped doing that. But uh, man, when I tried to ramp it back up, it was brutal. And so even even through spring training, like I thought I'd be more rested. And um, actually, I remember after the 2018 season, I threw like I had like 80 appearances. Yeah. They the Cubs actually slowed me down in spring training, and that was the worst thing ever. Like I came out of that and talking about workload, like I wasn't ready for that chronic workload early in the year. They wanted me to pitch like every day. I'm like, dude, you just sat me out in spring training you know like it's my arm's not catching up with my body right now it's it, but if i had to go back to do it all over again and kent was you were really good about this i would i would just continue moving and stuff and not just you know sit around and play golf for a month yeah. i think it's a bell curve like there's some guys yep. that i mean you were a guy that like you hated off days like you'd go in and play catch on off days during the season like some guys just have to have a ball in their hand it's it's kind of how they're they're wired you know, there are other guys that, that don't throw much at all, that have no problem taking time. Like, I think we see a lot of young guys that are maybe addicted to the tech and they, they get into the habit yeah. of, like, before both they're throwing pregame bullpens and on top of their normal throwing program, and then they get, you know, maybe they get an, an up in the game and then they sit back down and they get another up and then actually go in the game. Like, before you know it, that workload has really, you know, spiked, you know, way more than they anticipated. So it's managing Wait. bullpen really tough. People actually count the up downs these days. Is that what you're saying? Because from what I remember, they didn't even think that was like a real thing. Like, oh, you're up down three times, but you're at the night and you're up I, tomorrow. I can't, I can't speak to every organization. I know that's something that we take a lot of pride in and we scrutinize really closely. So we had, we had Reed Cornelius as our bullpen coach in Miami. He would keep track of that stuff. And yeah. at one point, under, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Jack McKeon, my rookie year. I was 14 out of 16 days in the game or up in the bullpen. Oh like, it was ridiculous. Because you threw underhand, out. though. He didn't think it counted. <laughs> exactly. Well, Underhanders have elbows, too. I mean, and Steve, don't give me like, – you know, it's funny, actually. As I was looking at some of that velo data, I'm like, like Steve pitched when he was at his max. And I, I remember you had that uh, 
I was in April when you were coming off the WBC where you came out with the arm slot, like a little bit higher, but like yeah. there were some sixes in there. Like there was, there was definitely some arm speed. The game is just so much. Can you imagine having 98 to hundred and being able to do it on back-to-back days? Like it's, the game is just so different right now. So when I hear about people yeah. like, Oh, none of these guys got hurt in the 1980s. Like, but let's, let's think about that time period is those guys, they had PEDs, like they were rampant throughout the game. It was a really, really significant issue for an extended period of time. And they still threw slower. So the, the mindset was they, they had all these pharmacological interventions that were illegal. They had terrible training programs, clearly, because they weren't magnifying the effects of, of all these illegitimate interact interventions. So what they were really doing is they were capitalizing on the recovery benefits of them. Um, and yeah. on top of that, a lot of them were, were using not just things like that, but the amphetamines were an even bigger concern is that, you know, they had a lot of things to get them going for the game after, you know, that overnight flight from the West coast or something like that. So the game is dramatically different. You can't compare a guy throwing 98 clean in, in 2023 to a guy, you know, in the late nineties who was throwing 88 and making, you know, 85 appearances, you know, it's just so dramatically different. I, I mean, I think it's for the better. It speaks to, you know, the game's cleaner now. It's a more fair playing field. Like guys can turn over a million different stones to get better from a training and mechanics and video analysis and pitch design standpoint. Like the game is very, very competitive. And um, for sure, you know, we, we obviously see it the most being in the AL East where it's just like every night is like a playoff atmosphere and all that. Yep. So it's, um, it's, it's wild seeing how much things have changed, but um, it's, it's not easy to compare to what happened in the 90s. How, hold on, my final question. How in the heck does everyone throw so dang hard? Like, how did this happen? How does every, when we first came in, one guy might have thrown 98 in like the league. Now everyone, like if you don't throw 98 and above, you better have the biggest sinker in the world or have the invisible. Like wipe out slider. Something yeah. wipe out slider and you have to throw it every pitch. Yeah. yeah. So I think the first thing is they're, they're, the training initiatives are a huge part of that, right? We know a million different ways that you can get guys to, to throw harder, whether it's just body weight increases, whether it's you know, things you do in the weight room, med ball stuff, whether it's various throwing programs, weighted balls, underload, overload, long toss, um, the, the, the literally just the, the amount of tech that can help, right? Looking at spin efficiency, whether it's, you know, Trackman Rapsodo, which you get on Hawkeye, or, you know, obviously using the Edgertronic um, cameras to make sure that you're actually imparting force to the baseball correctly. Um, certainly we have biomechanics labs that can make you super efficient and optimize your delivery in the context of, of how your body moves. I, I do a ton of that stuff in the scouting realm to see like, okay, what do we see in this delivery and, and how can we improve somebody physically to optimize them? Um, so I think those are, are really, really big things um, for sure. But the other thing too, I think it's, um, some of it is uh, it's an early identification process where you think about it, more and more kids are being pushed early. Um, so we're seeing more chances for 15 and 16 year olds to throw harder. So they're throwing harder, younger. And what it does is it just throws more kids in the funnel who think they're really good at baseball, who, who may be you know, good at baseball and ones that don't get hurt wind up becoming big leaguers. But um, right. yeah, it's, yep. it's pretty eye opening. Um, you know, just kind of seeing what's, what's happened across the game because like I, I, I mean, for a while, like when I honestly, when I first came on with the Yankees, it was, it was like eye opening. Like literally every time I, I walked into our minor league complex, here's a new guy throwing hundred. Like it was, it, it was incredible. And, you know, like Steve, you and I kind of like spent a lot of time in Massachusetts. Like it was like Daniel Bard throwing a hundred at Fenway was like a, it was like a thing. It's a big like, deal. 
it was, yep. it was talked about. It was all over. I mean, that was obviously a long time ago, but um, it's just incredible how every major league team's got at least a couple guys that are doing it. Drew, we messed up, Steve. I ran from those guys, the biomechanic guys. We should have should have looked at those guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to teach a hundred from my arm slot. I think so. I'm too dumb to throw any other way as it is. They're like, do you want to throw a bullpen in your underwear and put the dots all over your body? No, totally. No, you guys are just gonna this is gonna hurt me in my free agency next year. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everyone kept no, saying. I was like, maybe I should have listened. Hey, sometimes you gotta, it's it's the weird you got to embrace though. You know, there's there's there you're always looking for like outlier qualities, whether it's a pitch or delivery, whatever it may be. And uh, you know, I think where baseball sometimes goes wrong is trying to fit you know guys like you to the average, like. Um, I mean, you know, Kins, you even got into some trouble, right? You started chasing, chasing strikeouts a little bit uh, at one point, kind of got away. That's from Max's that. fault. We were. <laughs> yeah, we're throwing a lot of shit back today, but, um, but uh, no, I, I think that's sometimes a problem is like guys don't understand how to identify what's uniquely them and, and leverage it over the course of your career. And I, I feel like both you guys really did that well for, for a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I th I'd say it worked out. We. We had, we had long enough careers to where I can complain about my neck and shoulder enough to say I was done. So, <laughs> and hip. It's never over yeah. till it's over, Steve. That's right. Kins is making a comeback. Who knows? Maybe I will too. No. <laughs> Yay! You heard it. Everyone heard that. <laughs> no, 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 no. My wife isn't here. That's why I said that. <laughs> well, hey, man. All right, Eric. Well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. I mean, I think this conversation is. Hopefully there's some dads out there and some parents that this goes a long ways for them. And uh, one, I am grateful for having met meeting you in my career. You definitely changed my life and my career. So I want to say thank you and for being a good friend through it. You got it. Absolutely. I, I second that, man. I value our friendship, man. And you're a huge reason why I was able to stay, you know, healthy throughout my entire career with one, one hip hiccup that no one could, couldn't avoid. So <laughs> I attribute all that to you, man. You know, you know my shoulder better than I do. So. Thank you for all your hard work. Programs only work because people work. And you guys always uh, always showed up and always put in the hard work and ask good questions. And, and honestly, we're good uh, good ambassadors for, for what we try to do, leading leading from the front and taking a lot of guys under your wing a lot of the way. So so we appreciate it. And I love what you guys are doing with this. It's a, it's a cool uh, retirement project. <laughs> appreciate it, bud. <laughs> are you retiring <laughs> us? <laughs> Putting you out the pasture. For my retirement project. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. <laughs> See you guys. guys. Catch up soon.